got it. All right, we're going to jump in today. Um, studying today the clause, uh, the clause in the Apostles' Creed that I would argue uh, is the most widely agreed upon clause in the entire Apostles' Creed in this day and age. And yet I would also say probably the most scandalous clause of the creed when it was first written 18, 1900 years ago. And that is this phrase right here. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Does anybody else need another handout? You need one? Okay. We may have extras. This is an extra. So I don't, actually, I will need it to say the creed, actually. We got extras over here, too. So, yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> All right. So. We'll get into it in just a second, but first let's, let's take a moment and uh, let's recite this together. So flip over to the back if you're not already there. Here we go. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. All right, let me pray for us, and then we'll get started. Dear God, as we come to this very pivotal and very critical phrase today, one that all of us have heard, those of us who have grown up in church at least, from as far back as we can remember, um, it can be so easy, I know in my own mind, to, to fail to let it impact me as it ought power of it to hit me as it ought. And so I pray for this grace today from your Holy Spirit that you would uh, help us to hear this with with fresh ears, to see Jesus and what he has done with fresh eyes in a way that that stirs our affections up for you um, and that um, gives us a greater desire to know you and obey you. Pray your spirit would do that work that I cannot. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right, so I gave you this phrase as we started that, that this clause, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, is probably the most agreed upon phrase in the creed today, in this day and age. Um, and yet it was also probably the most scandalous when it was first written of all the clauses in this phrase. So here's what I want you to do. Take a moment at your table and discuss why that might be true. What is it about this phrase that is that makes it so easy for everybody to buy it today and would have made it very at least scandalous whether it was believable or not. I'm not even saying believable or not, just at least very scandalous when it was first written um, back in the, the second century probably. So take a few minutes at your table to discuss that and then we'll talk. Thank you. 
It's going well. How about yours? Are you getting to, well, mine's a little different than yours. Mine keeps on going the same every Yeah, that's true. That's it? true. Mine changes quite a bit. Do you get to relax and retool a little bit? A little bit for these first couple, but next Monday I'll start traveling. I, I go around, there's, uh, I'll do about four weeks of speaking at these youth conferences, and so... Okay. Once I get into that, it gets a little bit crazier, but yeah. it's still it's, it's still at least a different kind of thing. And, and so it's kind you, of, is it something where you're gone? I mean, are you traveling outside of Oklahoma? Uh, yes. Okay. A couple in California and then Tennessee and so Alabama. Except that Jim used to be. Yes, that exactly. Okay. That exactly. So, yes, sir. Have a good day. You too. classroom now that you all know my travel plans, you who are listening to this on the recording. All right, give it 30 more seconds. Does anybody else need handouts? I went and made some extras if there's anybody who's for short. Sweet, I got, I got others if anybody else needs it. All right, sweet. All right. Let's get to it here. Ooh. Tell me, why is it that of all the phrases in the Apostles' Creed, this is the most widely agreed upon in the world today? right. You can be, this is perhaps probably the only part of the Apostles' Creed you can be an atheist and still affirm, um, because almost everybody believes there's a very small pocket of people who still want to try to hold to the idea that the existence of Jesus even is a myth. 
but, but very few people will do that because, as Anthony said, it's not just Scripture that points to this. We have, we have non-Christian um, records that point to this, that, that mention not just that Jesus existed, but that he died and was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Josephus, the Jewish historian, in 93 to 94 A.D., um, or AD 93-94, records that there was a wise teacher named Jesus who raised up a following of both Jews and Gentiles and who was crucified by Pilate under the influence of the Jewish leaders. So Josephus, a Jewish historian, who is actually a part of, anybody know what political group he's with? The Pharisees. Uh, Josephus, the Pharisee, um, says that there was a teacher named Jesus who was crucified by Pilate under the influence of the Jewish leaders. Um, the Roman historian Tacitus, who was writing in A.D. 116, but he's writing about the, the, the fire that destroyed much of Rome under Nero in 64. So he's writing about, about the period of 64, but he's writing this in 116. He writes about how much of Rome burns down, and a lot of people started suspecting that Nero had something to do with it because it burned a lot of like the slums down, and Nero was able to go in and rebuild things kind of the way he wanted there. And so he talks about the way Nero kind of, to, to get attention off of this, we don't know whether he did or not, but to get the focus off of him, he pins it on the Christians. And this is what Tacitus says. Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, so Christ, Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty under the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate and a most mischievous superstition, that is Christianity, a most mischievous superstition thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. <laughs> so, not a big fan of Rome or of Christians, as you can tell from that. But one of my favorite things about that quote, actually, is what Tacitus says there towards the end. First of all, he doesn't like this. He calls this this crazy superstition, but he says um, that this most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out, not only Judea and spread over. So what he says is, after they killed the Messiah, just like is true with every other Messiah that rose up in the first century, after they killed him, the movement died. But then the movement exploded again all of a sudden and took, out, took off out of Judea and even into Rome. And Tacitus cannot explain why this Messiah's movement took off after his death when every other's died off after his death. I love that little quote there and, and that idea. But So we have from a Jewish historian and a Roman historian both claiming that Jesus died and that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Everyone agrees that it happened. The disagreement is over who did it and why they did it, or why it happened. In other words, what was the significance of this event, which we'll get into a little bit later. But before we go into that, we also said that this was perhaps the most scandalous of all the phrases when it was first written. And so why is that? What, what would be scandalous about this in the first, second, third century? Okay. Largely because of a couple of things. The Gnostic idea, which we'll get into, which was, again, to, to kind of refresh you when we've been talking about it, um, repeatedly because the Apostles' Creed is continually taking jabs at it, but the idea that um, rooted in this kind of platonic philosophy that the spirit is all good, that the flesh is all dirty and bad, and so therefore the Son of God could not have come in the flesh. So Jesus either uh, appeared to have a body. There's some spots over here. Sorry, girls. No problem. And here's some uh, handouts for you. Yep, no problem. So either uh, Jesus appeared to have a body, but he didn't really. This is a branch of Gnosticism called docetism from the Greek word for seeming or appearing. He seemed to have a body, but he didn't. Or this physical man, Jesus, had the Spirit of God come down on him and then leave before he died. So that's, that's kind of the Gnostic thing. Um, but there's another reason it would be really scandalous to say that Jesus Christ was crucified, dead, and buried. What would that be? Crucifixion was a hideous... Okay. 
that this was a terrible, awful way for anybody to die. Not just terrible, awful. We think of the suffering of crucifixion. We think of man, when you hear it described, the nails going through his hands and feet, the fact that you basically suffocate in your own bodily fluid as you're doing it. All of these things that are going on in it, we think about that. But for them, in an honor-shame society, this was the most shameful way to die. And so it's scandalous because Christians were admitting that their ruler died one of the most shameful deaths as a low-class common criminal. And that's not something you brag about. That's not something you put in your Pledge of Allegiance. But that's what they do in the Apostles' Creed. They, they are willing to, um, to say this is what Paul touches on in 1 Corinthians 1.23. He says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews because the Messiah would never lose at the hand of the Gentiles. So it's a stumbling block to Jews for me to say that our Messiah was crucified by the Romans. And and he says, and folly to the Gentiles, that is foolishness to the Gentiles because no honorable person would ever die of crucifixion. Roman citizens weren't even allowed to be crucified. You, You could not crucify Roman. That was considered too beneath them. Um, and there are some Roman writers of the time who say that crucifixion is not even polite dinner conversation for proper people, for high society. And so to go and preach to them about this man is crucified, and by the way, you ought to obey him and worship him, that's folly. That's foolishness to them. Um, actually, the first crucifix, you know, when we talk about crucifix, if you go into um, the, the Catholic Church here in town is beautiful and ornate, and they've got this big crucifix up at the top, Jesus up on the cross at the front of the thing. The very first crucifix ever put together, as far as we know, there's this one apparently on this little gem, but um, we think the very first crucifix, representation of Jesus on the cross, was not done by a Christian. It was done on a piece of Roman graffiti found in Rome. Um, and the title of it is Aleximenos Worships His God. You may or may not have seen this. If you haven't, you can actually go Google. It's easier than Googling Aleximenos. Just go Google Roman Graffiti Jesus. And you can see an image of this. And what it is, is it's a man sitting up on a cross, but instead of a human head, he's got the head of a jackass on him. And then there's a man sitting down on the side of the cross, like worshiping it. And then someone has scribbled in there, Aleximenos worships his God. Apparently, this Aleximenos was a Christian of some kind in that area, and somebody's obviously mocking him. Because what idiot would worship a crucified jackass like this man here? And they can't, they can't get their mind. This was um, inscribed around 200 AD in a wall in Rome. Um, so actually a little bit before the Apostles' Creed is kind of coming together a little bit. But, so you can go Google that and see that. But that's the idea that, that Roman society, the Roman Empire, that Gentiles in general had of, of someone who was a crucified criminal. And that's why this is a scandalous idea that we're um, talking about today, or was for them at least back then. So what are we confessing when we say these words? What, what do each of these words or little mini phrases out of it mean, and what is their significance? First, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. It's kind of interesting. There are only two other names other than, like, the Trinity that get mentioned in the Apostles' Creed. One is the Virgin Mary, so props to her. That's a pretty good one, all right? And then the other person who gets mentioned, it's just kind of interesting to think about this, is this literal kind of no name other than this Roman governor by the name of Pontius Pilate. And his, his name goes in the Apostles' Creed. His name recited weekly by Christians for almost 2,000 years, which is really kind of a fascinating idea that he would be basically otherwise insignificant except for that he happened to be ruling in Judea at the time of Jesus and therefore oversaw the death of Jesus. Kind of a bummer. Um, The point, though, of mentioning Pilate in this is not to try and put the blame on him. It's not to try and say it's Pilate's fault. It's not to try and say what a bad person Pilate was. The point is actually to mark this as a real historical event. Back then, they didn't say in the year 30 or AD 30 or AD 33, Jesus was died. They didn't mark things by year. They marked it one of two ways. One is to say in uh, so many years from the birth of Rome or from the foundation of Rome, so, uh, you know, 
30 years after the foundation of Rome, 80 years after the foundation of Rome, this happened. That was one way to mark it. And the other way was to just mention who was ruling at the time. You know, Tacitus did the same thing. When he mentioned Jesus' death, he said, during the reign of Tiberius, and then he said, uh, suffered under Pontius Pilate. So he mentions the, the emperor ruler at the time, and then he mentions the actual governor ruler. This is a way of marking the date uh, that something had happened. Um, and, and one of the reasons this is obviously so significant for, for Christians is not just kind of recording the time and stuff, but because around this time, and, and for a long time before, for hundreds of years leading up to, there, there um, were a number of religions and belief systems in the area that had stories of gods resurrecting, um, that had myths of resurrecting. And sometimes you'll hear people, atheists, like to try and um, throw this out, that Christianity, that it was just borrowing and recycling these resurrection myths from, from hundreds of years before or from the time. Um, nowhere close to true. Uh, and, and, and it's very far off. If, if you want some information and to laugh pretty hard today, um, go Google or YouTube uh, Horace Ruins Christmas, okay? Um, really, really good stuff uh, describing, uh, describing how you know, Christianity did not borrow from these things. But here's the, here's the idea. In all these other myths, this is one of the reasons that uh, Christianity is so different from it, all these other stories, belief systems, um, were stories that were... Um, eternally reoccurring myths. <laughs> found it, though. Very good. You found it. That's it. Um, you can go talk to Melinda afterwards if you're wondering where that is. Okay. Um, uh, so, they, uh, so anyway, they were these reoccurring myths that were tied to nature and designed to explain it. So a lot of the Egyptians or a lot of different um, groups had belief systems in which a god died every winter and so when he died, so did all of nature. You notice the leaves fall off of the trees, and everything goes into hibernation, all those things. And in the spring, every spring, that God resurrected, and so does. And because that God resurrects, so does the world. So it wasn't a, this happened. It is a, every year this kind of happens. And I think even, even then, they sort of knew that this isn't fully real, but kind of real, but kind of that was kind of the way they explained it. Christianity, in contrast, says, no, we're not talking about some eternally reoccurring happens every year as a way of explaining nature. We're talking about a real in-time event, something that took place one time and one time only, and, and it happened, here's, here's how you know, it happened under the reign of Pontius Pilate, is what they're saying. It happened as a, as a real historical event. Um, and so they are always making sure to point that out, and that's why you see so often when they talk about Jesus' suffering, how they'll say, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified under the reign of Pontius Pilate, because they want to clarify we're talking about an actual event that happened in human history that we could record and point to. Next word on that phrase, crucified. Crucifixion was specifically, at least at this time, a Roman form of execution, kind of borrowed and adapted from the Persians over time, but it was at this time a Roman form of execution. So there is actually a hint of subversiveness in this phrase, that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified um, by the Romans, because what they're basically saying is that the one that the Christians hailed as king of the universe, the Romans crucified as a fraud, as a wannabe king of the Jews. This phrase um, implicitly says when they say that he was crucified by the Romans, they're basically saying the Romans were wrong. The Romans got it wrong, missed it, um, crucified the true king the true Lord, when they would confess Caesar is Lord, and, and the Christians confessed Jesus is Lord, this is what they meant, that the Romans are wrong and we've got the right one. Um, but this does actually lead a little bit to the issue of blame. Oh, man, I didn't bring my Bible. All right, I'm going to count on you guys to read for me. Um, this leads us to the issue of blame, which in recent years has become hotly debated. Who killed Jesus? Whose fault was it? for killing Jesus. Um, this became kind of hotly debated because, um, largely because for most of history, the church has mostly pointed at the Jews as the ones responsible for Jesus' death. And this has led throughout history to many forms of anti-Semitism um, on behalf of Christians, from some Christians and then from people who aren't. Um, but this idea of saying they are the Christ killers. They are the 
evil people who killed Jesus. And so because of that, and because of the hatred that that has inspired in recent years, has actually um, shifted among, like, among scholarship and stuff to really point it away and say, no, no, it wasn't the Jews' fault, it was the Romans'. The Romans killed this man as a threat, as a rebel king, as someone trying to start an uprising in Palestine. And so they're the ones you ought to be looking at. They're the ones who, who did this. Um, and they're the ones who, who deserve the blame in this. But go ahead, go to Acts 2, and I will, I'll need somebody to read this. Acts 2, 22 and 23. This is in Peter's Pentecost sermon on, on the day of Pentecost as the people gather around him. Um, and uh, who, who can read this for me? All right, um, Heather, read, read Acts 2, 22, verse 23. Here's what Peter says. Okay, there you go. So Peter doesn't mind pinning the blame on everyone with this one, okay, um, including God, actually. He says this, that he was given up with the, according to the definite foreknowledge and plan of God, and you, Jews, crucified him at the hands of lawless men, Gentiles, Romans. So all three, he actually, he puts both Jews and Romans in there, but then he also says, but you need to know this, at the root of it was God. God, ahead of everything, actually, is the one who killed Jesus, is the one who planned this. It was his purpose and plan. Jesus seems to say something similar to Pilate in John 18, 11, when Pilate can't get Jesus to answer his questions or talk to him, and he goes, why aren't you going to answer me? Don't you know that I had the authority to crucify you or to set you free? And Jesus says in John 18, 11, you would have no authority had it not been given to you from above. And therefore, and this is where Jesus kind of seems to get in the blame game too a little bit, therefore the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. Um, we don't know if by that he means Judas or by that he means Caiaphas, leader of the Jewish Sanhedrin, the high priest of that, at that time. Um, but either way, he kind of says, you are guilty of a sin, but the one who handed me over is guilty of a greater sin. But, by the way, it's not you who's in charge of this. God actually placed um, placed you in this and gave you the authority. This he says in John ten eighteen, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. So Jesus says, no. Listen, nobody could if they wanted to, if it wasn't for me choosing to lay it down. So this is where the issue of blame becomes beside the point, becomes foolish. We can recognize, I believe, because of this, we can recognize people's guilt without letting it lead us to hate. God planned this. And men killed Jesus, not because they were Jewish, but because they were sinful. I do believe that whoever Jesus would have come to, that God orchestrated as it was, but I do believe um, the world, because it is the world, rejects the light. And so wherever he lands, it's not an issue of Jewishness, it's an issue of sinfulness. And it is our own sin that is responsible for crucifying him. It is, it is our own sinful nature that does those things. And that's why we don't, we don't try to pin the blame. We look to God's plan in, in all of this. Last little section of that phrase, died and was buried. Here we get back to the Gnosticism. Um, the Gnostics, as I said, just to, just to kind of go back over, the Gnostics proposed various th theories to get around this idea that Jesus died because, again, he didn't actually have a physical body. You can't actually kill God. He's spirit. And so there were these different ideas. One is that Jesus' body, as I said, was never real in the first place, that he simply appeared to exist, and therefore they weren't actually crucifying him when he was up there, docetism. Um, another one is actually that he switched places with Simon of Cyrene when Simon came and carried the cross for him. So Simon picks up the cross, and then Jesus, kind of in the middle of the crowd, walks through it, and Simon ends up going the rest of the way and getting crucified. And we're talking about a bummer. Wrong place, wrong time. Um, but he, so they, they proposed that Simon was actually the one who was cru crucified. And then the other is the belief that Jesus was this human being. And then the spirit of the Christ came upon him at his baptism and then left him before his crucifixion. So the man Jesus, yes, that, that man died. But the actual Christ did not. The, the, the actual spirit of Christ um, was gone before the crucifixion 
took place. And, and this way of thinking, this idea really did become a big threat to orthodoxy and, and, and Christian. This was, as we said, the first major threat um, to Christian orthodoxy and to right and proper belief. Um, you can tell by the way Ignatius talks about it. Ignatius writing at the end of the first century, so like right after John writes his three letters or writes Revelation. So either at the end of the first century or the beginning of the second century, Ignatius writes these words. Stop your ears if someone comes, so plug your ears, if someone comes to speak to you against Jesus Christ who is descended from the line of David and is the son of Mary, who was truly born and truly ate and drank, who was truly persecuted under Pontius Pilate, was truly crucified and died in view of all who inhabit heaven, earth, and under the earth, who also truly rose again. So Ignatius says, listen, if someone comes to tell you that, plug your ears and shout, la, 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 la. Don't have anything to do with foolish people like that who are going to try to spread lies to you. Have nothing to do with their words or wisdom because this, this heresy was spreading around the time, around that time. Um, earlier I did say that this was the most widely agreed upon phrase today, but there are still some who, who don't buy it. Like I said, there's a small pocket of people who don't believe that Jesus actually existed, but like I said, they're a very small minority. But others who don't believe that Jesus was actually crucified, dead, and buried would be the Muslims. Um, Islam, uh, most Muslims would believe that actually um, not replaced by Simon of Cyrene, but replaced by Judas on the cross. And that God, and I, I don't know if they explain exactly how they believe it worked, but that God kind of pulled a switch and put Jesus, Judas up on the cross to suffer instead of Jesus um, during that time. I remember the first time I was in Turkey talking to somebody. I had a little Turkish-English dictionary, and we're trying to have a conversation about Jesus, which gets difficult. Um, and, him, and him explaining, you know, you can't find Gnosticism in the Turkish dictionary anywhere. But um, so he's trying, he's explained to me that Judas that, that they put Judas on the cross instead of Jesus, and I, and that's really, again, I'm going, there must be a mistranslation here. Nobody believes that, um, but that is actually kind of the, the belief that many Muslims have, um, and, and there's actually a small group, again, this is, I'd say, probably a shrinking group, but was, was trying to grow for a little bit that, that we call swoon theorists. You guys are perhaps familiar with the swoon theory, which is that Jesus did not really die on the cross, but instead he swooned, he went into a comatose state and that after being placed in the tomb for a few days, the cool air of the tomb or whatever it may be kind of revived him. And he woke up and then came out of the tomb. And when people saw him, they assumed, oh, he rose from the dead. But really, he hadn't risen from the dead. He had just come out of a coma. Um, this is kind of a theory that many people propose for a while. But, but it's being abandoned more and more because it's medically ridiculous um, about, you know, to do with meanings because we know how... how good the, the Romans were at executing people. It's not like they didn't know if someone was just sleeping or dead, okay? Um, and because you don't, you don't sustain the things that a person does on the cross and then just come back from that three days later. And you don't come like, okay, so if he does that, like, you don't come like limping and crawling your way out of the tomb and people go, oh, he's God, and they start worshiping him, okay? Um, there's nothing like miraculous or glorious about that. Um, but people have gone to this theory, again, and this is kind of like Tacitus. They know that something happened. This is the thing that people can't get around. Because a religion where people start worshiping a man, if you know anything about Second Temple Judaism, cannot um, be birthed out of Second Temple Judaism. It's like, it's like trying to say that somebody could start a religion in Saudi Arabia claiming to be God and people would worship him today. That would never happen in Saudi Arabia. It's the, the, the religion there is too extreme. The government is too harsh on anybody who would try to get away with that. It would never happen, and people know that, that that would never happen in Israel in that day and age. And so people are left trying to scramble for an explanation as to why Christianity was birthed at all, the existence of the church at all. And so they come up with crazy theories um, because, of course, the resurrection can't happen. That's scientifically impossible. So the swoon theory, that's scientifically impossible too, but we'll believe that. And, and they'll come up with kind of crazy ideas as to why that is. Um, what is the biblical support for this? 
What is the biblical support? So here's, here's kind of the truth. Support for this occurrence, you, we can find this everywhere in the New Testament. That's like all they want to talk about is that Jesus was crucified and dead and buried. Okay? So you can find this everywhere in the New Testament. Uh, here's the questions I want to kind of have, have us think about for a little bit. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, as he's kind of proclaiming, as he's saying, he's reminding them of the gospel that he taught them. He says, here's one of the things I taught you, that Christ died and was buried according to the scriptures, which means what happened to him matches up perfectly with the Old Testament, with what the, when he says the scriptures, he's talking about the Old Testament, with what the Old Testament said. And so um, what I want us to think through a little bit is not where does the New Testament um, affirm this, but where does the Old Testament affirm this? Where does the Old Testament tell us that this is so? Um, give us support for this. And then the second question I want to talk about a little bit is, um, what is the significance of Christ's death? Why did he die? As I said, people, everybody agrees he died. What people don't agree about is why he died, what the significance of it is. So I want you to biblically, I want you to discuss for a little bit, why does the Bible say that Jesus died? And let, let me just give you a little hint here. John Piper has a book called The Passion of Jesus Christ. It's about this thing. It's not very long. And the subtitle is 50 Reasons Why Jesus Died. So just so you know, you're not going to run out of reasons, okay? Unless you come up with 51, then you might be. But there are plenty. The, the New Testament gives a lot more reasons than just to save us from our sins for why Jesus died on a cross. And so I would love for you to take three or four minutes to talk about Old Testament stuff. So take, take a few minutes to talk about where the Old Testament supports this, and then I want you to take some time as a group to talk about what the Bible says about why he did. And even if you may not be able to come up with the reference right off your head, but you may go, I know the Bible says this somewhere, that he died for this reason, and then we'll, we'll work through the references. We'll find those. So take a few minutes to discuss those questions, and then we'll, we'll get back together and talk as a group.
All right, if you haven't switched to that second question, go ahead and do that now. Take one more minute, then we'll come back together. All right, let's let's chat a little bit. Um, real briefly, talk to me about that first question. From where, uh, from where in the Old Testament, how can Paul say that Christ was crucified, that he died according to the Scriptures? What passages did you discuss? <laughs> All right, Anthony. <laughs> um, we discussed, um, there's a passage in Daniel somewhere in the Bible. Um, it's after Daniel 7, I think, uh, where Daniel says that the Messiah will be cut off um, in like the middle of the something. Mm. And so that's there. And then in Zechariah, um, God is speaking, he says, they shall, they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. Yes. And then there's another passage in John that says they shall strike the shepherd. Yeah, they shall strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And so those are two passages. Okay. The Daniel one, I can't if that's eight or nine, I can't remember where that is. Is the Zechariah twelve ten? Is that right? They will look on him whom they have pierced. 
Zechariah 12.10. Okay. What else? Isaiah 53. Okay. The big one. Yeah, read those. That's that's a big one. Read read uh, read at least five and six or whatever there. That's, that's the big one to me. That's, that's probably the biggest. It's the one uh, that Philip uses to lead the Ethiopian eunuch to Christ. Um, the Ethiopian is reading that passage in Scripture and goes, who, who the heck is this talking about? And Philip goes, oh, let me tell you. Um, it's one that Peter references several times in his letters. Even if he doesn't even say it necessarily, he just uses those exact phrases multiple times to talk about Jesus in his letters. Um, Psalm 22 is the other big one. Um, did you have? Do you have it? Do you have that open? Yeah. You want to read a couple of the key verses out of that Psalm 22 all the way through, but it's kind of sprinkled throughout. But yeah. Um, so this is this the fact that Jesus quotes the first line and tells us that he's kind of taking the role of this particular psalm. So it begins with, "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning?" Um, and then down in verse 6, he says, I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me and make mouths at me, they wag their heads, which is actually what they would have done at the crucifixion of Birmingham. Um, and then it goes back down to verse 14. I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax that is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. And then keep going. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. Um, and then the rest is kind of like the, the victorious side. Uh-huh, uh-huh. That's strong. Those are 50, Isaiah 53, Psalm 22 become the biggest ones for me. There are these other ones out of Zechariah. I would argue, actually, the Old Testament Levitical code as a whole is a, is, is, that's what Hebrews says, is the whole purpose of it, um, the whole purpose of animals taking away our sins by the sacrifice of themselves, by the pouring out of their blood, was to, was to foreshadow this. Okay, so let's move to this next question. What is the significance of it? Um, why did Jesus uh, die, according to the New Testament or the Old Testament? I don't care. According to the Bible, why did Jesus die? Like I said, there's at least 50 answers, so you can probably be right if you think you might be right. So just shout it out. <coughs> okay, price had to be paid. Pay the price for us and to redeem us. Okay. Came as a mediator. Okay. Okay, as a mediator, so that way he could be as as uh, as Hebrews says, so that he could be our perfect high priest who makes one sacrifice for all time, rather than making sacrifices year after year after year, makes this one sacrifice. Hebrews nine and ten. Okay, so that he might be Lord, which is what what we said is is so kind of crazy about that um, that that this crucifixion together with his resurrection and ascension shows him to be ruler, shows him to be Lord. 
What else? Romans 8 talks about restoring the heaven and earth groaning okay. for that restoration. Yeah. Waiting that, that we are subjected to a curse by sin and that Christ's death is uh, undoing that as we speak and, and will come to full fruition when he returns. And that, that includes all of creation. Yeah, yeah, not just us, yeah. Hebrews 2 talks about um, he destroyed the power of death. Yeah, to destroy the power of death. Good. What else? Anything else? Okay. Yeah, I think so. I think so. John, I may have written that down. I can't remember. Um, I don't think I wrote that down. In John 7, I think, it's either John, I want to say it's John 6, John 7, he talks about, um, and he's talking about the Holy Spirit, and then John kind of clarifies with this little parenthesis. By that, he was talking about the Spirit, whom he had not yet sent because he had not yet been glorified, um, which John, John used that phrase glorified to kind of tie those three things together. His glorification is one event, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension. And so he says, because Jesus had not been crucified, raised, and ascended yet, the Spirit had not come yet. Um, so that's big. Okay, as obedience was one reason he did it, to, to, to obey his father. He, um, the, there's a technical phrase for this view called Christus Exemplar, but he died as, a, as an example of service and sacrifice uh-huh. to God's purposes. Yeah. And this doesn't mean everybody needs to go to the entire cross, but it does mean yeah. that we count our lives as expendable yeah. in light of the kingdom. Yeah. I mean, I, I mentioned First Peter. That's why I've been reading through this summer a little bit. And Peter draws back to this a lot. He says, hey, when you suffer for doing good, that is a good and right thing because you know this. Jesus left you an example in this, that he suffered even though he did good, that he suffered on our behalf, and we can live like that too. An obvious one that I kind of looked over was John 3.16. Yeah. It shows that God loves us. Because he loves us, yeah. which is great. Um, actually, and this is what's great, because God so loved the what? Okay, which is John's key word to use to describe humanity in rebellion against God. Almost every time John uses the word the world, he's not, just, he's not talking about the earth. He's talking about people who hate God, who live in, who hate the light, who prefer the darkness. God so loved them, those people. That he sent his only son. And then he clarifies in 17 a reason he did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Here's some others. Uh, to reconcile us back to God, 2 Corinthians 5.19. That God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. To satisfy God's holy wrath on our behalf. This is Romans 3.23-26. That's a big one. Um, that this, this word propitiation gets in there. That Jesus, um, that, that we deserve wrath from God, that we deserve the punishment for our sin, and instead God, lets, uh, God sits Jesus, and Jesus takes all the punishment that we deserve. Um, the same word is used in 1 John 2, 2. And then we read it in Isaiah 53, 5-6. He was crushed for our iniquities. Um, this, by the way... Um, if this phrase, that he was crucified, dead, and buried, gets scandalous today, that right there is where this gets scandalous. Um, there are a lot of people who do not like this idea because, A, it shows how deeply hated our sin is by God, how sick it is, and how perverse and dirty it is, and, and how much God is against it, and B, they hate the idea that God would have wrath against us, and then also that God would then pour out that wrath on Jesus. That just seems harsh. And, and that just seems wrong. And there are Christians who don't like that, um, who, who don't want to believe that, who want to believe that Jesus' death was about something different than that. Um, here's another one. To make us the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Um, that he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. How often are you referred to as one of God's attributes? Um, but because of Jesus, the righteousness of God. 
um, so that God could make enemies out of his, or so God could turn his enemies into his children. That's Romans 5, where I want to take you in just a minute. Here's another one. 1 Peter 1, 18, 19 says he did it to ransom us from the futile ways of the world, from the foolish things we were doing, from all the wicked ways we tried to, to make our life work. He came to save us from all of that, to buy us back from all of that. Ephesians 2.15 says he did it to create a new people for God. Out of the two, Jews and Gentiles and those who were once far off, he is brought together to make one new man for God. And as Hope said, not just to destroy death, but to destroy the one who has the power of death, to destroy Satan in Hebrews 2.14. So how is this relevant to us today might be the dumbest question ever asked in a classroom. But in, in a sense, as I was working through this lesson, this is actually kind of a hard one for me to kind of work through because it, it's too easy. Um, because this little clause here, crucified, died, and was buried, is everything for Christianity, is everything for us. As Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Paul says, my whole life is encapsulated in this phrase, crucified, dead, and was buried. My whole identity, everything I am is changed by this. And, and it's that big, which means it's that broad, which can mean that it gets that generic, that it can sometimes, that can almost take away from the personal impact of this truth. That sometimes I hear it so long, and I hear it in so many ways that sometimes it just becomes kind of this generic truth that, that ought to cut me to the heart, that ought to do incredible things in stirring up my love for him, but I confess to you doesn't. Even as I'm working through this lesson, struggling to kind of find how truly relevant this is for us to be able to see that. And that's why I would... Um, I would suggest that it is good, I think, to settle in sometimes on one specific aspect of why Jesus died and to reflect on that for a time. So we just listed like 15 or 20 of those. Here's my hope is that you would circle one and that you might just go and spend some time just with that one idea this week. This is why Jesus died. And, and to think on that and to meditate on that and to, to reflect on that. And, and what I want to do right here with our last few minutes, our last, yeah, we got... 10, 15 minutes, um, is, to, is to, uh, ref to settle in on two specific aspects from one passage. So if you have your Bible, go to Romans 5. This is a, uh, man, this is a beautiful passage. In the last couple of years, I've really grown to see as one of the best explainers of what grace is and how grace works. <clears throat> Here's what it says. I, I, I just want to read it out loud, then we'll go back through it, all right? Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only this, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Here's, here's two practical ways that Christ's death uh, ought to affect our lives today. The first is this. Christ's death kills any sense of pride or self-righteousness in me. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to look back 
read back through verses 6 through 11, and I want you to just call it out as you see it. I want you to read um, what are the list of terms that, that, are you, that Paul used to describe us before Jesus. Who are the kinds of people that Jesus dies for? So what are, the, what are the words or phrases he uses to describe us? And just when you see it, call it out. Weak. Ungodly. Sinners. Powerless. Did you say enemies? Okay, I believe that's it. Um, these are all the phrases used. This is why I say that this, I think maybe this text explains, even though I don't know, I need to look back through it, whether the word grace ever even appears in this passage. I think this is one of the best explainers of what grace is in the New Testament. This explains everything that we were when Jesus came to die for us. Weak. And godly, and there's a little bit of a progression, as you see, other than it's powerless, but weak and powerless go together. Not just weak and unable to save ourselves, ungodly, opposite of what God is. And not just that, we were sinners, and more than that, we were enemies of Jesus when he died for us. This is how God showed his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, while we were against him, God came to die for us. And I think that this can be um, helpful to read back through this with your name. And so if you were to put up here under, instead of what we were, Christ died because I was, or Christ died because Drew was weak. Christ died because Drew was ungodly. Christ died because Drew was a sinner, because Drew was powerless. Christ died because Drew was his enemy. And to have that in front of me, if I can see that, I think has a real means of killing any sense of pride or self-righteousness in me. I can't be that when I recognize that this is who I am. But then Paul also talks through this, and, and here you can go back starting in verse 1 all the way through 11, and he records all the things that Jesus has done for us in his death. So after Jesus dies, this is what takes place in our life. What are some of the things that it says that God has done for us in Jesus? Okay gives us peace with the one we were made for. Peace with God. Okay. We are justified. That is um, not acquitted. I always like that. This is helpful for me. Acquitted is um, you went on trial and we go, okay, you're not guilty. Justified is we found out that you're awesome. Okay. Justified is like vindicated shown to be in the right, and which, doesn't, which doesn't actually fit with any of this. We weren't in the right. And yet what Jesus has done for us is given us his righteousness so that we are now vindicated. We are justified by him in approaching God. What else? Hope. Okay, we have hope. Okay, we're given the Holy Spirit because of this. It's a bit of a jump down to verse 17, rain and life. Okay. So it's kind of a cool. We reign. This is a crazy thing that we will be kings and queens of the universe. Already, already kind of are, and then it will be shown to be as we get to reign with Christ in eternity over these things. This is the first two one of the places where we get the phrase uh, by grace through faith. Obtained by faith. There's the grace. Yep. Okay. Grace through faith. Here's this one. We have, because of this, God's love poured into our hearts which is a really kind of cool image. You have that, that chain. You have endurance and therefore character. Yep. And therefore hope. And therefore, I guess that's where the chain ends. 
And hope does not put us to shame. And this is the second, uh, this is the second thing, practical thing that this shows us about what Christ's death uh, does for us. Christ's death kills any sense of fear over God's wrath, hostility, or indifference toward me. So first, Christ's death kills any sense of pride or self-righteousness in me, but it also kills any sense of fear that God has wrath for me, that he is hostile toward me, or that he is indifferent toward me. So if this one is, Jesus died because Drew was, this is, because Jesus died, Drew has peace with God. Because Jesus died, Drew is justified. Because Jesus died, I have hope. Because Jesus died, God's love is poured into Drew's heart. Because Jesus died, Drew is now reconciled back to God. I forbid you to insert my own name into this. Um, if I am able to see, as real, see this as real and personal, then it is impossible for me to live my life staring down my nose at others in arrogance or in pride, proud of who I am or all that I've done because I know that this is who I am before Jesus, without Jesus. And yet at the same time, it is impossible for me to live in a solemn, woe-is-me, self-loathing attitude because I know that this is who I am after Jesus because this is all I have. And so um, seeing Christ's death clearly and what it has done for me shapes the way I live my life, putting up barriers against both of these errors in me. Um, my hope for you this week would be that you would ask God to make this real, um, that you would take time to maybe sit down with this list, inserting your own name. Um, Jesus died because Ashley was. Because Jesus died, Caleb has or is. And to just write those things down and to reflect on those things this week. Um, and and to, to maybe take one of those great purposes of Christ's suffering that we threw out earlier and spend some time reflecting on it, hoping that this becomes more and more real, more and more heart-changing, and more and more life-changing in us. Let me pray briefly for that to happen, then we'll be done. Dear Father, simply that, that your Spirit would help us to see this clearly, help us to be moved by it, Help us to be changed by it, that we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds as we renew it on the things of Jesus and what he's done for us. I ask you that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you, guys. We'll see you next week.